Welcome back to Between the Before and After, a podcast about the stories that shape us. I'm your host, Coach John McLernan. Each episode, I bring you an inspiring guest with a moving story that shines a light on the power of the human spirit. I'm excited to share this story with you, so let's dive in. What would it be like to spend 10 years of your life in a punk band touring around Europe, 10 years of your life acting as a blue cartoon dog, and maybe 10 years of your life living on a remote island? And that's only part of his life. <laughs> this is the fascinating story of a gentleman with a funny accent hailing all the way across the Atlantic Ocean. Um, in fact, we were just talking about pro wrestling, and I feel like I should almost give him a pro wrestling announcement. <laughs> Ooh, go ahead, please, 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 John. Ladies and gentlemen, introducing on the right side of the screen in his trademark red shirt, clean shaven on the top of his head with a little bit of hair on his chin, this man, a former punk musician, a, a blue cartoon dog, and a Google brand SERP guy. We don't know what that means, but that's okay. Put your hands together with a big round of applause for the one, the only, Jason Barnard. I didn't even ask if I was going to pronounce your name correctly. <laughs> uh, that was absolutely perfect. I'm so pleased to have had a pro wrestling introduction from coach John McLaren. <laughs> well, you know, I think what 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 you could hire me to do is to do your podcast introduction or something like that. You know? <laughs> we need you know, to talk to Maria about that. But yes, that was a great introduction. And the question is, yes, what is it like to have been a punk folk musician playing the double bass, then a blue dog, now a Google expert? Yeah, of all things. Like when, when you were when you were busy like touring Europe as a, as a punk musician, a uh, punk folk musician. I don't I don't think you were thinking I'm going to be an expert on no. <laughs> on Google. You know, like <laughs> that that didn't come to mind. Brilliant. Yeah. No, so, I I actually thought like I think all musicians when they're playing in a band think is we're going to be huge. We're going to be playing stadiums. We're going to be the U2 right. of tomorrow. And yeah. you're absolutely convinced that that's going to be the case. And of course it isn't. The probability is so tiny. <laughs> <laughs> but you're you're innocently and naively sitting in the van doing 100,000 kilometers. That's what, 60,000 miles yeah. a year, thinking this is all going to work out. And, of course, it doesn't. This is all going to work. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I very much want to dive into into your, your story, uh, that part of your story. In fact, because your life is just a series of fascinating stories, really. But before we dive into that, I just want to give people a quick heads up where you're at now. Because you mentioned, you know, you are a Google expert i don't even yeah. know what the word serp means s-e-r-p for those who are listening serp it sounds like a it's, it sounds like almost like a derogatory term for like i don't know something or other <laughs> that, that guy over there he's a total serp what, like whatever, whatever that Ooh. means you know <laughs> oh, <laughs> but, it, it, it definitely could be um yeah it's serp is a search engine results page and as you okay. say that's a huge leap from being a punk folk double bass player, which is what I was 30 years ago. And right, right. I love the fact that you say you never would have imagined it. No, I didn't. I thought I was going to be a huge rock star uh, retiring right. on the, the, the money that I had made from selling 25 million albums <laughs> of my amazing rock music. Never happened. So now I have a SaaS platform basically building business cards for brands on Google, which That's is amazing. hugely interesting, strangely enough. Yeah, something you wouldn't necessarily think. And for those who are, again, listening, SaaS is an acronym for software as a service. Yeah. And uh, SaaS is quite popular. So yeah, here's just an image of, uh, 
basically representation of what it is that you are doing. You're teaching people uh, and, and maybe maybe developing for people their Google business card. Um, yeah. I mean, the idea that when people are talking to you, they will immediately search on Google or that perhaps on Microsoft Bing, your name or your company name, that is effectively now your business card. And that's mm. where I've ended up. And one of the reasons I ended up here is because of the blue dog you mentioned earlier on. <laughs> and we can dig into that. And yeah, I'm trying yeah. to create mystery. <laughs> this Intrigue. is the mystery, yeah. <laughs> this is Jason, the man of many stories, the man of many mysteries. And for those watching, you'll see behind him to his, uh, just above his, I think it's his right shoulder, um, there is there is a, a photo of a, a winding road that sort of describes a journey he's on. And of course, hanging over your left shoulder. Again, I feel like I should like do Hanging over his left shoulder, there is a... <laughs> <laughs> An amazing guitar. guitar. Now, that's yeah. the first guitar I ever got. And I'm actually not a guitar player. I'm a double bass player. That's the right. bull fiddle. That's the big one. Uh, right. But this guitar is my 18th birthday present from my father, who okay. is an incredible literary intellectual. And he said to me, you can have whatever you want for your 18th birthday. And I said, I want a huge hi-fi with big speakers that's going to play punk music in our house very loud. And he said, that's not going to happen. But the <laughs> works of Shakespeare is on the table. And I said, oh, well, I really don't want the complete works of Shakespeare. Uh, what? And the compromise was me getting this guitar. That is funny. Um, I can't imagine why an 18-year-old wouldn't want the complete works of Shakespeare. Nuts, isn't it? Oh, I'll tell you another yeah. story about that is every year, I got a present from my dad, and it was always this shape. And I'm showing a shape of a, a small rectangle. Mm -hmm. And I always thought every year it's going to be a football <laughs> that hasn't been blown up yet. So it's this deflated football that I will then blow up, and I will get a football on my birthday or at Christmas. And it never was. It was always a book. Yeah. And that well, was... This, this this kind of naive idea over 15 or 16 years where I, every year I thought this year it's going to be different. And this year <laughs> it was never different. Uh, of those books, did you read all of them? And did you have a favorite? I read almost none of them. And I did have a favorite. And it was the one that I actually did read. And it's The Mayor of Casterbridge by Thomas Hardy. And the irony of all ironies in the entire universe is my daughter is now doing a doctorate in Thomas Hardy. <laughs> well, maybe that was a little bit uh, a little bit prescient there. So, um, growing up, you're you're getting books for your birthday, and you're not you're not entirely thrilled about this fact. Um, but no. you had this idea that you know, or maybe you kids usually have an idea. This here's what I'd like to be when I grow up. And what what did you sort of picture? Where exactly in the UK? Because the UK, you know, I I can't quite place your accent, but there's you know, you travel around the UK, and right. there's just a, like <laughs> 150 different accents just around this little island here. Um, where where yeah, did you well, grow up? If you look right at the top, there's a, a sheep and a cow, which you can mm. barely see. And I lived in the countryside. We we were all brought up in the countryside. My mother left the family home when I was four, leaving my father to bring up the children in the countryside in the north of England. Okay. She ran off with a jazz musician. Scandalous. <laughs> scandalous and romantic and delightful. But when you're a four-year-old child, it really, really isn't delightful at all. No. Um, 
So I, I was brought up in an intellectual world in the countryside with a musical background, mm. which is hugely confusing and probably explains why I am where I am today. Right. So your mom runs off with a jazz musician. You're four years old. Yep. What do you recall, like maybe like what you felt or what you thought? Like, did you, did you wonder if you like, I don't want to actually put words in your mouth, but like, do you remember what you, what you thought or felt about that happening? I actually don't remember anything. And that's one of the huge problems is my sisters were older or yeah, are still older than me, but um, yeah, that works. they actually remember what happened and I don't. And I'm not sure whether it's because I was too young or because I blanked it from my memory, but I have no idea how mm. I felt, what happened, and, you know, I, I'm still not there. But I know the result of it was that, that, number one, I because I was living in the countryside, I had to create a world of my own. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's driven me to be where I am today. And, and number are you, two... Oh. Are you youngest sibling? Yeah, I'm the very small one. Um, right, right. So youngest sibling out in the countryside. Also, I think without internet... Definitely. This was 1970, <laughs> the 1970, uh, yeah. absolutely no internet and huge loneliness, huge isolation. Uh, as a small child, that's hugely difficult to deal with. Mm. And I spent most of my childhood just inventing ways of creating some kind of uh, world around myself. I mean, if I look at the isolation, the village was, uh, sorry, was 25 people. Okay. My nearest neighbor was a mile away, and my nearest neighbor used to shoot my cat with their air, air rifle. So he wasn't friendly, and he wasn't somebody I would hang out with. So it was oh, hugely man. lonely. Oh, no kidding. Now, I, I suppose Sorry, can we all that, cry while yeah, I... Yeah, I know. I'm just like, oh, my goodness, this poor little lonely <laughs> boy with no mom. So after your mom left and, and, and ran off, when was the like? How old were you when she she first came back to visit or or make make a connection? Oh no! I mean, and that's the thing is kind of it's terribly romantic because then we used to go and see her every half holiday, right? And I used to go on tour with her. So I went to Italy on tour with a jazz band when I was fourteen years old. Wow! So okay. the downside is spectacularly bad, but the upside is I got to tour with a jazz musician band in italy in the 1980s which is hugely fun right right okay um but the first time you, you, your mom i guess or you would have seen your mom again after she ran off um do you, do you remember anything about that interaction like what she might have said or uh no I, mom why'd I, you I do this and once again i'm not sure if i don't remember because i was too young or simply mm. because i've blanked it but i remember a lot of positive things like going to see elvis the the movie uh, sorry it wasn't a movie it was a, a theater play Bugsy Malone movie mm. she used to take us to lots of things which were to do with music and that was hugely interesting and people say to me today you're a musician because of your mother and you're saying well actually am I she left when I was four did it really have that much effect on me or is it part of my genes and that's a huge mm. question I have no answer to right yeah uh, well, nonetheless, I, and, and maybe she left because she didn't want to live in the countryside with 25 people with a neighbor who shoots at cats either and uh, maybe didn't <laughs> want to get books for her birthday either or no, something, you know. 
And that's the thing is, in retrospect, you're going, yeah, I get you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't, don't entirely fault you. Um, you know, and I don't know your mother or your father. I don't even know if they're still alive at this stage in life. But, uh, um, you know, did you ever have any sort of like later sort of adult conversations with them about it and what, what took place? Or is it just one of those things that just kind of got buried in the past? Well, I think what we don't necessarily realize today is that we are often very open and that wasn't the case in the 1970s. So mm-hmm. very much buried in the past, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. So after after going on a few concerts and with with a you know touring jazz band and getting to do some fun things um, with, with your mom uh, as a teenager, what were you sort of picturing you were going to do with your life? You know, again, 1980s or yeah, 1980s. Not a lot of internet. In fact, none. Um, you know, diff- no. different world altogether. Well, 100%. And 1976, 1977 was the birth of punk. I was 10 or 11 years old. Mm. I had older sisters who bought these records and brought them into the house, The Clash, The Sex Pistols. Um, I listened to this stuff, and that changed my point of view as saying, yeah, I'm a punk. And I think the important thing about punk is that it isn't just the music of The Sex Pistols, The Dead Kennedys. I was a huge fan of The Dead Kennedys. It's not just the music, it's an attitude. And it's an mm-hmm. attitude you can still have when you're 56 years old like I am. So I've got punk attitude, and that's the point, is it appealed to me when I was 11. Mm-hmm. And I was lucky enough to have sisters who would allow me to listen to that stuff. But it also created enormous friction around my teen years from, let's say, 11 to 18, where I was constantly fighting the establishment. Right and constantly losing. <laughs> right, right. It, it w- was was the first line of the establishment like your father, or uh, w- w- what was well, that? My father, my teachers, my sisters, my mother, everything. And I, I would basically revolt against everything and anybody. Whatever you said to me, I would just say no. And that was hugely problematic. And it really doesn't make for a peaceful teenage period. Right, um, right. It, And it does mean, once again, very isolated. But once I hit 18, I then moved to Liverpool. And Liverpool is really cool. It is. It is, yeah. And if you live in Liverpool, you're a Liverpudlian, I think. Is that right? Yep, that's exactly it. I turned up in Liverpool, and you were talking about accents earlier on. I turned up, and they didn't understand a word I said, and I didn't understand a word they said because the accent was so different. It's only like... 60 miles apart, 100 kilometers. Right. Yeah. And yet they accepted me, I accepted them, and I integrated incredibly quickly. And it was really, I hate to say the word empowering, but, it, you know, football, music, going down yeah. the pub, that's about <laughs> the limit of what happened to me in Liverpool. And it was right, beautiful. Right. It was wonderful. So how did how did that lead you into being a, a double double bass player of all things as well because maybe that's right. not the first thing you think about when you're thinking of like a, a punk sort of musician yeah well i got into a lot of trouble in liverpool um which kind of culminated in me being held hostage and beaten up uh through a night in liverpool okay uh, on new year's day and it was hugely hugely um terrifying I was going to say traumatic is a word that comes to mind, getting held hostage and beaten up. Yeah, it, it lasted maybe five or six hours. And 
I, I was really struggling after that. And I moved to Paris because I just needed to get away. Mm-hmm. And I moved to Paris, which is where I become the dual bass player. And when I moved to Paris, even more than Liverpool, it was liberating in the sense mm. that once I got to Paris, I didn't know anybody. So right. I could be whoever I wanted. And I reinvented myself completely and said, I want to be, I mean, I was a musician in Liverpool already. I was in a band and we played the Cavern Club where the Beatles played, which was really cool. But I turned, yeah, up, yeah. I turned up in Paris and I said, I'm a musician first and foremost, whereas in Liverpool, I was an economist who was doing a degree who came from an intellectual family. I turned up in Paris and I said, actually, I'm just a musician. That's it. And I'm not going to talk about anything else. And again, the pre-internet days, you didn't have, people couldn't just look you up on LinkedIn or something Good like point. that to look. <laughs> Lucky for me. Yeah. <laughs> look at your history. But I, I just want to rewind a, a second here. How did you end up like getting taken hostage and getting beat up? Like what, what was the situation here? Cause it's, you know, it's not an everyday Complete. thing that. Right. No, I, I worked in, in one of the seediest bars in Liverpool and okay. people presumably followed me home. Um, I have no idea why they thought I might have any money. I was a poor bartender. And they turned up and they were basically beating me up and saying, give me the money. And you're saying, there isn't any money. And they wouldn't believe me. And you're going, what on earth makes you think I've got any money? I'm a student and a poor bartender. And they wouldn't give up. And they beat me basically to a pulp because Mm. they thought I was hiding huge sums of money when (laughs) I was just poor. And and I'm more fool them. Oh, right, and terrible on me, obviously. Right, and but eventually they just they they kind of give up. And uh, where did you find yourself? Um, well, they 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 gave up after putting a knife to my throat, crushing my toes, punching me in the face, taking a hockey stick and smacking me on the head with it. Um, and I, this was all in my own home. Okay, ooh, even worse. Pers- the, well, the police came and, and took me to the hospital, and the doctor said there's no proof he didn't do it to himself. And you're going, what the fuck? But I, I was – that made no me kidding. drink a whole bottle of Ethiopian milk liqueur. Oh, and I was so drunk by the time I'd actually got to the hospital that I couldn't reply. I couldn't think. All I could do was hear what was going on. So I was this kind of secondary character in this entire situation. And the doctor said, there's no proof he didn't do it to himself, send him home. And the police took me back to the place that they had just picked me up from and just threw me out of the the car into the garden. And I was lying in the garden thinking, what the fuck am I going to do? I'm so drunk. I've got no idea what's happening. And I'm in a pitiful physical state. And I can't possibly imagine staying in this house because – it's so scary. So I, I actually went around and knocked on the door of a friend of mine who wasn't a particularly good friend, but who incredibly kindly invited me in and, and gave me a huge hug. And if you know Charlie Brown? Uh, yes, I do. There's a, a moment in Charlie Brown where he says, when you're riding home from the cinema with your parents in the back of the car and you go to sleep because you know that you have no responsibility, then they're looking after everything. That's the safest thing you can possibly imagine as a child. Mm-hmm. And I remember going to see this, it was a friend of mine, she gave me the hug, she put me in bed, she said, you're safe, you're with me. I felt like Charlie Brown. I was yeah. 22 years old and I thought, this is what it, this is, 
the feeling of security and safety that you don't ever get if you're not a child. And if if I may cry on my own um, world is my mother left me when I was very young. I never had that as a child. It was a huge moment. No kidding. Did that? uh, So I'm curious. um, Was there was there any way in which that positively affected their or fostered a friendship because of this gesture? I can't even remember her name. <laughs> so absolute shame on me. Um, Shout out was... to wonderful, caring, kind friend who <laughs> who brought Jason to a feeling of safety. Um, and if you happen to, by some random happenstance, maybe the Google guy can make make this episode appear so prominently on Google that uh, she listens to this episode and goes, "I remember that moment." And then she reaches out to you and says something you know this is all an imaginary story i'm making up but no 100 percent. the the thing is i can't remember her name but i can picture her face Mm -hmm. i could reproduce a photo of her because it meant so much and and the name i'm not sure why i can't remember it but i think it was hugely 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 traumatic um fair enough yeah and she she saved me from a really really difficult situation and yeah I can remember a face. I can, I could produce a photo of a from my own mind's eye, but that doesn't actually really mean anything. But yeah, <laughs> that's quite remarkable. And I was just thinking, with with AI and AI image generation today, you could probably describe something, and AI would draw it, and and you can make some tweaks and adjustments and so on. I mean, I, I don't know a lot about AI visuals, but I just know that the whole that's AI thing is really is really taking off in in a sense, and so. It would be I, I get now. Now it's it's one of those stories that'd be fascinating, you know, like reunited thirty five years later. <laughs> well, um, actually, really strangely, I remember her best friend's name. Okay, who's Judith, and she married the lead singer from ABC, who were a huge eighties band. Okay, so shame on me. I remember the best friend of the person who saved my life but not the person herself, which is terrible. But right now there. you could go down the Google rabbit hole. I mean, you look up who's, who is the, it was a lead singer of the, of the band ABC in the 1980s. Yep. And you could look at, so, so um, who that is, and then Judith, and then uh, if her name had changed, then you could find a way to contact her and say, do you ever remember your friend so-and-so who lived Good at this point. address in, <laughs> uh, in, in Liverpool? I, I'd forgotten her name, but she saved my life. And uh, I'd love to be able to thank her 35 years later. That's brilliant. Actually, you're right, 100%. And I think part of it is also the same thing as my mother is. I'll just put it into this blank memory where I'm just going, let's not remember that part because it's too much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I that's think, the human safety yeah, valve going on. Absolutely. But it, but it's beautiful to have someone, just, just that level of human human kindness. It's something that everybody should get to experience at some point in time in their life. And, you know, I have, I have a little toddler. He's, he's two. And so um, mm. try to create that for him, you know. Uh, just make sure that he knows above all else, even after he's been corrected, that he is loved and he is safe and he is, you know, secure and so on and so forth. So um, brilliant. And and that secure and safe and loved is hugely important. And I think many, many people grow up without truly feeling that. Um, mm. And it isn't a question of saying it. It's, just, it, it's a question of living it as a parent yeah. or as a yeah. friend. Um and I certainly feel that that it's not something I've had and it's something I've suffered a great deal from. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, I was just thinking about one, one little ritual I have with, with my little fella. Um, cause we, we rough house cause that's what dads and dads and sons do. Um, so he calls it flying and that's why I take him and I kind of chuck him onto the bed so he can land on a stack of pillows or mattress or whatever. And he thinks oh. it's the greatest thing. He can't quite pronounce his L's yet. So he says, fry, fry. And, uh, he's asking, essentially he's asking me to chuck him onto a stack of pillows or something like that. And he knows that he's going to be safe when he lands, you know, yeah. there's a soft landing kind of waiting for him. But uh, I have one one other sort of ritual with him is when I when I change his diaper on the change table after I'm done changing, I stand him up, and at that height he's kind of like head and shoulder height with me. So I say hug, and he gives me a hug while standing oh, on the change table. Sorry, that's lovely. Yeah, yeah. and, Hug, and uh, hugs are huge, and I think we forget that hugs are huge. And I, mm-hmm. I'd like to point out to everybody who's out there in the world is virtual hugs are huge. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have loads of friends in Ukraine, and I was thinking, what can I possibly say? to support them as human beings? And the answer is virtual hugs. Mm. It means loads more than we think. Saying, sending you a hug, it absolutely, absolutely helps. And obviously a a real hug is better, but Mm. a virtual hug is still pretty cool. Just just some type of human connection, you know. Um, So carrying on with the, the story of Jason's life here, um, you, you, uh, had found yourself into a punk band and then, but, uh, punk folk band, but at this point in time, now you've gone to Paris to reinvent yourself. Um, did your band follow you or how did you, how did you remain connected to the band? What was the story there? Oh, right. No, I was in one band in Liverpool mm. and then I joined another band in Paris. In Liverpool, I was a lead singer. So okay. I stood up on the stage, I sang like this and I was really thin. Right, and right, people right. would come and see the band simply because they couldn't believe that somebody that thin had a deep voice like this. Right, 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 yeah. And that Good was the radio. whole concept of the band is this tiny, thin, white guy with an incredibly huge, deep voice singing blues songs all day long. Right, right, I right. I woke up this morning, I got my baby out of bed. <laughs> And then I went to Paris, and they went, we don't care about that. We right. need a double bass player. And I didn't play the double bass, but I bought a double bass, and they said, if you can learn to play the double bass in 30 days, you can play in our band. And I got a place in the band simply by buying a double bass and figuring out how to play it in 30 days. And I actually <laughs> turned out to be a very good double bass player, if they'd said – to, to learn to play an instrument in 30 days, like a double bass. Four, oh, I was very bad. Four it, strings, after 30 it? days, I wasn't very good. Right, right. Because uh, the double bass is referring to its its size and, it, and its height, but it's it's a four-stringed instrument. Is that correct? Yeah. It's a four-string right. instrument. It's huge. Stands and, up, right? Yeah, it's a stand-up bass. And uh, was it Charlie Mingus, who's a double bass player, who said it's 80% physical domination of the instrument and 20% musical talent? Right. Suits me fine. That's it, really right. good. <laughs> yes. So you find yourself in this band. Now, in Paris, uh, now, do you speak French? Um, did it, was this band a French band, or was it, did you find some British expats in Paris who said, let's be a band in Paris? Or what was the, it, you know, what happened there? It was there? French, English, German, and at one point, some Danish people in the band. Uh, but it was a huge mixture of different people from different cultures, and we played any folk music, hugely punk style. And if you look up today uh, on Google, the Ace of Spades by the Barking Dogs, you will find the hugest folk punk version of the Ace of Spades you will ever hear. And honestly, I'm incredibly proud 
of what we did because as a group of four at the time, we were so solid and we played such good music. And it wasn't me. It was a group of four people. And it's a team. And that's what I've learned right, the right. last 30 or so years is we all need a team, even if we think we, we can be independent. Well, let, let me see. <laughs> now, now I'm curious. I'm like, let me see if I can find uh, the Ace of Spades performed by the Barking Dogs. Because now, now that you've said, because I mean, now, okay, I'm like, this, this, this is something we've got to see if we can locate here. Um, does this look like oh, the right? Oh, yes. That's Chris yes. on the violin. He is the most nuts musician you've ever seen in your life. He is the most singularly oh. talented human being on a music instrument you will ever see. And if you play the video, you'll see the singer who is nuts and the best singer you'll ever see. Right, and the right. drummer I, who's absolutely nuts and the best I, you'll I ever see. I just want to make Sorry. sure that I actually shared it correctly um, in order to... Uh, in order to actually play the sound here, because now, now that we're, I'm like, now I'm committed. We're we're gonna we're gonna share this. We're gonna share a little clip of, uh, yeah, share the audio. Okay, beautiful. Here we go. Ace of Spades by the Barking Dogs with uh, Jason on the double bass. Uh, let me hit play here and let me know if you can hear this. Yep. Is that you there playing the double yep. bass and singing? Oh man. <laughs> and he's nuts oh that is funny there you go there you are oh, man. This, is, this is the first time i think in, pod, in this podcast history, i've pulled up a youtube video of a double bass player singing a song that is of space that is funny that, that was uh that that's quite something so now we have the visual of you of you doing this and this this is like a mixed uh a mixed group of people who have different linguistic and musical and cultural backgrounds coming together and saying you know music is a universal language let's let's make something happen here yeah 100 percent, and and going out and having fun and we actually made a living from that for 10 years so <sighs> we were touring around europe thinking we're going to be huge stars. And I think we, you know, we, there's no reason we couldn't have been in the sense that we were actually quite good. Right, but right. truth be told, it's one in a million that you're going to be you too. Right, or, yeah. Or the Beatles or the Rolling Stones. Right, yeah. And we weren't the one in a million. We were the 999,999. Um, it didn't mm. work out. Uh, yeah. But we had a great 10 years and it was super super interesting super fun and i learned to perform which is a huge huge win right yeah and so you said you played over 600 concerts sold over 40,000 yep. albums and played yep. to more than 200,000 people like those are not small numbers like th this is yeah. quite an impressive feat really but we, we we worked at it for 10 years so if you divide it by 10 it gets smaller if you then divide it by the number of weeks in a year 52 the numbers suddenly get very small so right, right. it depends how you present it. But if you were able to see, think about like even podcasting, for example, um, the number of podcasts in the world, the number of people that actually make even a living from podcasts or even earn any income at all from a podcast is very, very small, you know? And so I think the same thing goes, if you, if you made enough money that you weren't losing money being a yeah. musician and even being able to make a living you enjoyed more success than the vast majority of musicians and bands that have ever existed in history. hundred percent. And then what happened, of course, is that the other people in the band said, we're not making enough money. We're leaving. And I right. ended up standing on my own thinking, what am I going to do now? Um, <laughs> so I created the blue dog and yellow koala with my ex-wife. 
so this is a cartoon that you you then created. Yeah, um, we, we used to have a joke in the band in the in the van. You get so bored sitting right, in the van, just driving, and yeah, and you'd have these conversations saying, "What's the worst possible concert we could do?" And the answer of everybody else was playing in front of six-year-old children. And I was secretly thinking, "Ooh, I'm in a punk folk band, so I can't possibly say I would quite enjoy that." But in truth, I would have quite enjoyed it. So I then created Buwan Kuala with Veronique. Mm. in order to do these songs for children aged two to six. Okay. So I was desperately keeping quiet sitting in the van, not letting on to the fact that their worst nightmare was actually my dream. <laughs> so now I, I'm thinking to myself here as you describe that. Now I wonder if you were drawn to that because of maybe like the childhood you really didn't get to have. And ooh, I don't know if I'm ooh. connecting dots that maybe don't exist, but I was just thinking – you giving children something you wish you could have had as a child, and maybe that's why this had meaning to you. Possibly. I would definitely say that's a possibility. I've never analyzed it that way. Uh, but definitely something that is a reasonable uh, assessment of the situation. One thing that struck me about Buwan Koala, which is the here, the Blue Dog and Yellow Koala, this is the punk yeah. folk band. This is Buwan Koala, the Blue Dog and Yellow Koala is that we had huge success. We were the 10,000th biggest site in the world. <laughs> we had 100 million pages, 5 million kids a, a month coming to the website. We then made a TV series, and we created new content every month. Wow. And it was always interesting. It was always different. It was always a bit nuts. And it always hit the nail on the head. It was always popular, and it always worked. And the, the people from ITV International, Granada, uh, uh, the, the, the producers in, in France would say to us, how do you do this? Do you analyze what children like and then create content according to what they like? And I said, no, PBS famously spent a million dollars figuring out what kids liked by doing these tests on children showing right, content. Right. And we beat PBS. We were bigger than PBS. Yeah. Just by saying, I think this is fun. Right. Me and yeah, Ronnie yeah. would sit in our garden saying, why don't we do a disco show? Or why don't we talk about frogs? Or why don't we talk about this right. or that? None of it was analyzed. It was just, we think this is fun. And it, as luck would have it, what we thought was fun turned out to be what kids thought was fun. So we saved ourselves a million bucks. Well, now, now that you know, we, we've shown a clip of you playing bass uh, with the barking dogs, which is kind of interesting that you then voiced um, a blue cartoon dog. W what was the name of, of the show? If I was to like find uh, uh, maybe an episode or something like that on YouTube so we could play a little clip of it again for people to see. Uh, if you look for Buwa and Koala, what color do you get? You'd probably find a, a song. Um, Buwa, B O O W A. Koala, K-W-A-L-A. Buan Koala theme song. Oh, look at that. <laughs> yeah, you might not find a video. The Buan Koala theme song will probably be a record rather than a, uh, an animation. But What Color Do You Get is a song about how you mix colors to create other colors. Right, okay. So we're, we're, we're going to look this up. It's funny that we're, you know, uh, what color do you get? And... Uh, what color do you get song? Oh, there we go. Oh, right. Okay. So you found it. This is, this is real live 
podcasting experience. Oh you? man, this is I'm, I'm departing from some, somewhat of my usual format here, but this oh, is this sorry. is kind of this is this is quite fun uh, to to I'm I'm indulging my own my own curiosity here, and so oh, do we have do oh, we have the. Right. Uh, Oh, yes, that's it. I knew you'd get that one. That's Grandpa <laughs> Koala. And I voiced the grandpa in the background and the blue dog. So I did five characters in the in the show. Okay. So we had this situation where Boo and Koala were these two characters, the dog on the left and the koala on the right. Mm. And we did it for two years. And then we realized that just two characters, we can't keep doing this for years and years and years if there's just two characters. So right. we created these families. But we were living, as you said earlier on, on a tropical island right and we thought right we'll create the family so koala's got a mother a father a grandfather and a grandmother buwa's got a sister a mother and a father so we ended up mm. with nine characters then we thought we need voice talent and in mauritius there was no voice talent on this tropical island <laughs> and we suddenly hit, found ourselves in a situation where for two years their families kept appearing on the show but they never said anything because we didn't have anyone to do the voice Oh, that's and the kids funny. started saying, why doesn't Dawa talk? Why doesn't Grandma Koala ever say anything? Right. And we ended up in a situation where we had to do the voices, so I ended up learning to do five different voices, even wow. though that's not my job. So I, that... can, actually, I can do it now, is uh, Daddy Koala. Hello, it's lovely to be here. It's absolutely delightful being in the garden looking after the beans. Right, right, yeah. And kid, you get away with it in the sense that that's different enough from the Buwa voice that it doesn't appear to be problematic. Right. Uh, so Buwa is the blue dog? Yep. And this yeah. is my natural voice. So Buwa has my absolute natural voice. Right. Well, let's, let's play just a little clip of that for people to enjoy. oh that's funny and did you have to learn um animation as well yes yeah (laughs) i actually got invited to san francisco by macromedia at the time uh who were the previous owners of flash before adobe uh, as one of the best animators in the world uh in adobe flash or macromedia flash alongside The BBC and The Prince of Egypt, which was produced by some huge studio. I can't remember if it was Sony. <laughs> and PBS. And it was PBS, uh, Sony, the BBC, and Jason and Veronique. Woohoo! Wow, yeah, yeah. That's quite something to think, ha- having a run like that for, for, for 10 years. And you mentioned Veronique, uh, which does sound like a French name. I'm wondering, did, yeah. you, did you meet her as a touring musician and she was drawn to yeah. your, your sort of... Uh, wild punk uh, attitude and uh, zest for life. Yeah, we fell in love in Paris in 1990, 1991, and ended up getting married and having a child and created these characters together. Okay. Um, so absolutely wonderful and delightful meeting and coming together of like-minded people. And I think from that perspective, um Meeting somebody and creating something as powerful as the Barking Dogs with the other people I was in the Barking Dogs with, and then meeting Veronique and creating Buwa and Koala, it's amazing. I mean, it's it's so lucky that I met those people and that we could do those things together and that it worked out. Mm. And so for someone who's never held a, quote unquote, a real job in, in life, you know, 
How do you transition from, uh, I guess, creating a, a children's cartoon to becoming like a master of Google? Right. Well, I, from the very beginning, what keeps happening to me is that I want to do something and companies don't want to do it with me. So the music is that I never had money. I never managed to sell the group to a record company. So I created my own record company and released the records myself. Right. I couldn't get a touring organization to put the gigs on for us. So I created a touring organization to do it myself. And that lasted 10 years. And then for the blue, the blue dog and the yellow koala, we tried to sell it as a record and then a book. Not, none of them wanted it. So I then created a company in order to do that. Unfortunately, I chose a business partner when it was working and I could potentially have not taken a business partner. I took the business partner anyway because I got fooled, I would suggest, by somebody who was very manipulative. Mm, been in that situation, and yes. gave him 50% of the company. And yeah. that was the hugest mistake possible in that situation. And so after 10 years of success and making a decent amount of money and really entertaining the world, we hit a moment where he wanted to get as many, basically his KPI, his key performance indicator mm -hmm. was how many dollars per head? How many dollars am I making out, out of each children? And I need to maximize that. And my mm. key performance indicator was how many children can I share this with and make a tiny mm. tiny bit of money each time, but sharing the whole process. And making the, making the, a difference the, in their life just by entertaining them with some innocent, sweet, fun, you know, children's yeah. entertainment. Yeah, exactly. And I was saying the thing about the internet, and this is 2008, is we can scale this infinitely. So if we've got sure. 5 million today and we're making $40,000, let's say, if we get 10 million, we won't make 80,000, we'll make 60,000, but the cost to us is very small, so it doesn't matter. Right. And he was saying, no, I want to take the 5 million we've already got and basically screw them for every penny they've got. And I find that shocking. I found that mm. incredibly difficult to deal with. Um, and when you've got something good and pure and lovely and friendly and positive, I just want to share it. I'm really not mm. interested in, you know, if, if, if I've got $10 million or $20 million, what the fuck do I care? Right, right. Yeah. It doesn't make any difference on a day-to-day -day level. You know, I've got a house, I've got a double place, I've got, yeah, anyway, you understand the, the, the point mm -hmm. of view. And that's when yep. it all fell apart. Okay. So difference of values falling apart uh, and, you know, maybe bad decision-making, but some really great lessons that come from that. And then, then you just discover that like this, I don't know, Google thing, that not a lot of people right. know a lot about. No, well, what actually happened is I was on the tropical island and the business fell apart and I was stuck on the tropical island with a family and I had to make a living very quickly because we had no money. And the whole business had been taken away from me. And so I then thought, what, what can I do to make money short term? And the answer was, going to companies and saying, if I can get a million visits a month for Buwa and Koala, this blue dog and yellow koala, from Google, just think what I can do for your business when I start working <laughs> on Google for your business. And I right. got clients that way. So I became a Google expert because I was already a Google expert without even having realized it because right. we had built our strategy for Buwa and Koala online fundamentally and significantly on Google. 
So I then just went and said to people, think what that will do to your business. They took me on and I made a living out of that. Then the irony was that people would then Google me to see if they wanted to work with me. Right, and what it right. said at the top was Jason Barnard is a cartoon blue dog. And then they right. would just not sign. So I then thought, well, if I want these people to sign up to work with me, I need to say Jason Barnard is a super-duper SEO digital marketing expert. Right. So I set about changing Google's perception of me from being a cartoon blue dog to being a digital marketing expert. And that's where I came into managing your brand or your personal brand on Google is hugely important because you aren't what you think you are your audience you Mm. are what google says you are right fascinating and uh boy i I need to talk to you about my personal brand i think (laughs) and And it's hugely complicated people think it's really simple and they think oh my digital footprint is incredibly clean i'm very clear we're not we're human beings it's total mess it's nobody i think as an individual a podcast or or a company it's all a mess and what we do at calicube is clean that mess up because mm. I had to clean my own mess up. Right, I know what right. it's like. I know. I think you know if people if people like Google my name, um, and I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only. It's it's a relatively unique name, Jonathan McLernan. There's not a lot of them out there. There are a few. I think I've found eight or ten on Facebook or something. But it, it isn't super common because the name itself was changed um, to avoid being hung as horse thieves. I guess my my ancestors uh, in Northern uh, Ireland did that and then fled to Scotland or something along those lines. Um, that, that and was then moved on to America after Scotland because they obviously made a mess in Scotland as well. And that's right, the right. point is you've made a mess. You've yeah. moved on. You've made another mess and you've moved on again. And on the internet, all that mess is connected and you can't just move on. You have to clean up the mess. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I think there's... Sorry, there's, I'm, you know, I don't want to insult your family. Ooh. Oh, I'm deeply offended by this. That's it. This interview is over. <laughs> Oh no, that's all good. Um, yeah, it, it's so, and, and and I think the average person maybe doesn't really think about it. And and I think about like digital privacy as well. And I'm, I'm a fairly public figure. You know, uh, the podcast is seeing upwards of ten thousand downloads a month, which I think I'm like, wow, that's that's huge. Yeah, we're we're, we're being downloaded in more than thirty five countries. And and to me, I mean, that sort of boggles my mind a little bit. I'm like, that's that's kind of cool. I just started this so I could have interesting conversations with interesting people. Mm. And other people are interested in listening to these, which I think is is fascinating. So, well, you can quite a... say something there. Sorry to interrupt yeah. you, but you are a public figure, whether you like it or not anymore. Mm-hmm. You yes. put yourself in that position, and I meet a lot of people who say, "Oh, you know, I don't really want to be public." And you're saying, "Well, you are public by definition. If you're a film director, if you're a yeah. podcast host, if you're a company CEO." You're a public figure, like it or not, and it's in your interest to let me help you manage how Google perceives you and therefore how Google presents you to your audience. Mm-hmm. And you need Google to present you correctly to your audience because your brand is what Google says it is. Yeah, yeah. Well, Jason, you got one heck of a story, and I'm sure we could probably just chat for hours, but uh, as we bring the episode to a close, I always like to ask my guests, you know, if there's one sort of maybe nugget of wisdom or one thing that you hope people take away from listening to this conversation today, what would that be? I think for me, the hugely important part of my life is that I've always done what I want to do, what I am driven to do, what I enjoy doing. And the downside of that is that the French government 
I've been living in France for 35 years, mm. sent me a letter the other day saying, your pension is 250 euros, $250 yeah. a year. Wow. Yeah. So the downside of doing exactly what you want is that your pension is going to be non-existent. The right. upside is that you've got a smile up to here and you enjoy your life. Problem is when you hit 60, 65 years old, you're going to have to figure it out. And that's something I'm coming to. But <laughs> the advantage of learning the double bass is that I can still play the double bass so I could potentially make a living playing the double bass if my pension doesn't work out. You could you could be a busker if need be, and <laughs> yes. you could, you you could probably use your Google talents to make yourself a famous busker on YouTube. Should you really apply yourself to it, because I think you're you're obviously very driven, and uh, you've enjoyed quite a bit of success as kind of a just a you know from a scrappy uh, a scrappy start in a little village in in England from a lonely little boy with a big imagination to traveling the world as a touring musician and creating a a hugely successful cartoon to now what you're doing today. Um, yeah, it's really been a pleasure chatting with you, and uh, this definitely won't be our last conversation, so I look forward to when we get a chance to to chat again. Brilliant. Yeah, and I'll come right back to the beginning. Is Right at the beginning, when I was sitting in the countryside in Yorkshire, would I ever imagine that I would be one of the leading authorities on how to change Google's perception of a brand? The answer would have been absolutely not. I'm going to be a punk. I'm going to show the world <laughs> that I'm revolutionary and different and up against everything. But I, I think kind of as life goes through, you end up moving towards something more peaceful, but mm -hmm. always with the punk attitude. Yeah, It's not about the music. It's about the attitude. I love that. Well, Jason, thank you so much for being on the show today. It's truly been a pleasure. Brilliant. Absolutely. Thank you so much for tuning in to Between the Before and After. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review because that helps this podcast to reach and inspire more people. I love exploring the stories that take place between the before and after, the powerful experiences that shape who we become, and I love human potential. I love the possibilities that lie within us. So whatever you may be up against, I hope these stories inspire you because if you're still here, your story's not done yet, so keep moving forward.